Welcome to Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini. And today we're going to talk about apps and politics and political apps and, well, hopefully something even more important than apps. A few months ago, my brother-in-law, who is a sometime listener of the show, sent me a link to an app called Countable and said, hey, I think it'd be really interesting if you guys talked about this. Countable is a neat little app that basically says, who are your representatives where it's a United States focused app. So apologies to our international audience. I know there are a few of you out there who live in places like Italy, etc. We're going to focus on American politics today because that's what we know. Countable is a little app that says, okay, where do you live in the United States? Give me your zip code. And you fire it up and it says, okay, here are your representatives. And here are the ways they vote on specific bills. Here are links to information about those bills. What would you vote on this bill? And essentially is an attempt to connect voters, people like you and me, with the ongoing bills and basically try and increase political participation, get you knowledgeable about what's going on locally and get you engaging in terms of learning about it, making decisions about what you think is best, seeing how your representatives are behaving, and then hopefully engaging with them. It also includes a direct link to register to vote, etc. So it's a neat little app. It's a neat little idea. Around the same time that Chris was getting his mention of Countable from his brother-in-law, I was getting it from another friend. So we came about this, this app at about the same time from different angles. And it's definitely something that interests me because I'm interested in keeping people involved in politics. And as a public health rule, the best thing should be the easiest thing to do. So if there's something that's bad for you, that's easy to do, people are generally going to do that instead of doing the good thing that's difficult and time consuming. So if you can make the good thing to do something that's easy, then that's going to get you better participation in the good thing. So Countable says, all right, well, everybody use app. Everybody is not involved in politics. So if we give them an app that would allow them to be involved in politics, maybe they would be more involved. And that's a great idea. And I have been in conversation with Chris about things like that for a long time because I'm a little more politically engaged than Chris is on certain issues. So I've been very interested in how we can get people involved in government. And this app came along. There's also another app uh, that came along called Simplify, which is in the end stages of a Indiegogo campaign. Um, and I hope that they um, do a similar thing and reach a different audience and go on excellently. But we're not necessarily here just to celebrate some inventive ways. Woo, cool apps. <laughs> yeah. Although although this is a podcast and you might be thinking, oh, they're just going to say woo, cool apps. We actually have some, some interest in discussing what these apps mean, what they do, not necessarily their functionality, but how they operate inside our culture, what they mean ethically, and how it all works. So one of the things that's interesting to both of us, we both think these apps are a good idea on the whole. They are a net win in that, as Stephen said, they let you engage in the political process much more easily. Getting access to this information has become easier in the last couple of years. There are a number of websites that have sprung up to give more good information from as nonpartisan a point of view as possible. We'll link some yep. of these in the show notes. Yep. But basically websites that just exist to give you full access to the text of bills that go through Congress. Websites yes. that give you a rundown of the basic positions of both parties, the money that's flowing through both parties. And these are great. But there's still mm -hmm. a pretty high barrier in that you have to, A, know that they're out there, 
B, go looking for them, and C, make a fairly substantial effort to stay up to date on them. By contrast, these apps on your phone are a tap, and all of a sudden you've got immediate access to the behavior of your representatives and the bills that are going on right now with quick links to information on them at a simplified level, and then you can get more information as you desire. Essentially what it's doing is exactly what Stephen outlined, making it easier to do the good thing. And we like that. But, and this is a big but, mm -hmm. we also recognize that that only takes you so far. We think those kinds of steps toward political engagement and toward easing the political engagement are very, very, very good things. However, there is sometimes, and we have talked about this before, there is sometimes a tendency among technologists like us to think that, well, if we can just get some technology in people's hands, we'll solve the problem. No. <laughs> <laughs> the problem yeah. is a little more fundamental than simply not having access to the information. Having access to the information and making it easier is a really good step, but it's not the only thing that needs to happen. And so I'm definitely a little more pro, let's call it utopianism. Let's just, <laughs> let's just call it that. Techno-utopianism. Um, Techno-utopianism. I'm, I'm still not super pro in, in the longest sense that it can bring about the general utopia. But I do believe that people who have access to things do things that they wouldn't have done before the access. Things like the Arab Spring and things like making big campaigns on change.org that make health companies bold in fear. These are things that wouldn't be possible before certain technologies appeared. So I do believe that things work really well sometimes and that we should get more people involved in doing these things. And the mass of people will overwhelm the small majority that attempts sometimes to keep those masses doing the thing they want them to do, whether that's paying high healthcare fees for things that they should be covered for or various other types of things. But Chris is right. You can't just say that politics will be completely changed if everyone participates, because if everyone participated, we would still have a fundamental split between some people believe that thing and some people believe this thing. We would just have a higher voting percentage disagreeing um, on some level. And related, I think there's a tendency among people post-Enlightenment, really even post-Renaissance humanism, simply to think that more information will automatically solve our problems. And if we all just had enough data, enough information, if we all were better read or better studied, this would fix things. And, well, it would improve certain things, to be sure. I think less ignorance is generally a good thing. And mm -hmm. I think people voting from a stance of less ignorance and engaging politically from a stance of less ignorance is a very good thing. But as you just said, it's not going to... It's not going to fix all the things because you can be very well read and disagree very strongly. Right. I think that there is a strand of techno-utopianism that says, oh, once everyone has the technology and knows how to use it, then they will clearly think the way I think. <laughs> of course they will. Which to some degree is true. We know that there are some aspects of people's uh, thought patterns that change when they have more information and more exposure to people of other races and they generally have better perspective on the fact that other people of other races are not generally trying to hurt them. We know this from research and experience. So that's a thing that's real. However, that doesn't work for everything because there are some things that are outside of quote unquote ignorance that each side would like to attribute to ignorance. So there are, there are good and fundamental reasons to not believe in abortion. And other people think that there are good and well-meaning reasons to believe in abortion. These are not things that are 
often a result of total ignorance, but of very well readedness. There's right. not a there's not a adjective for that, but <laughs> being very well read. Informedness. Informedness, yes. Yeah, there are at some point you get to a place where different presuppositions raise their heads, different fundamental affirmations raise their heads, and those in turn produce different results as you reason through them. You know, you can say if A, then B, but if we disagree about whether A is true, then we're going to disagree about whether B. Or the definition of A. Yeah, or the definition of A. And that that shows its itself in a lot of places. And this leads sort of to the second half of this, which is while we think that, you know, it's interesting to talk about apps and how they can contribute to the political process and improve the political process in some ways, but have limited effectiveness in that they cannot fundamentally change human behavior. They can change it in some ways and to some extent, but there is still going to be a certain degree of apathy that is just a function of people's lack of interest or lack of belief in their ability to make a difference or simply having other things that they care about more. The app isn't going to fix those. Well, we think there's an analogy here to a broader issue regarding politics, which is to say politics can accomplish a certain amount, but when we start hanging everything on it, we can end up engaging in a sort of political utopianism that is just as flawed as a sort of technological utopianism. When we want to hang everything on the political process for our solutions, we're going to be disappointed inevitably. There are other spheres which are necessary to make change and to make real change across society. And this is true in a variety of ways that we can see in the world right now. So places like Europe and Scandinavia, where they have deep and entrenched, entrenched isn't the right word, but entwined or intertwined idea of state and government. There's a lot of things that are really good in those those countries. Their education is admirable. Their healthcare outcomes are generally admirable. Their university structures are very different, and we can argue about whether that's good or bad. But there are also some things that are very problematic. A lot of these countries are deeply resistant to immigrants, and they are deeply resistant to any sort of change in the ways that they do business. Um, so they're very static entities, some less so than others, but there's not a lot of of ways for things to change. There's not a lot of productive or unproductive discussion and rhetoric that goes on in America. Now you can say, well, all the discussion and rhetoric that goes on in America is not helpful either. But that would be an exaggeration and not true. <laughs> I mean, maybe a slight exaggeration, but <laughs> but things are I I feel that, you know, we've seen a lot of things over the last year that have resulted in some really good changes. All the officers in Ferguson now wear on-body cameras. That's an excellent change and we know that cuts down on police brutality. Just the thing we know happens. So I don't think that this sort of rhetoric is entirely impossible. I don't think it's entirely unfeasible. Now, I do agree with Chris in the larger scale that politics will never bring about utopia. Never has in the last, you know, 8,000 years we've been tracking human history. <laughs> and I don't think it has a very good hope of doing that in the future. Now, can it improve the quality of people's lives? I think Absolutely. it can. Yeah. Um, especially when you have people who are in line with their leaders, or at least the majority in line with their leaders. Again, another problem of politics. You will never get people 100% aligned with an idea. 
even ideas that we go back and think, yeah, that was obviously a good idea. <laughs> it was really contentious at the time, I can almost guarantee you. So there's definitely a situation where you have to have good leaders, long-term visioning leaders, and a populace that respects the process of politics, but also looks other places for other solutions. One of the points that I've come back to often on this podcast is referencing James Davison Hunter's To Change the World, which is a really interesting manifesto or screed about Christian cultural engagement. And he's basically saying— I would also call it a book, but— Yes, it is that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's a fairly strong argument against Christians taking politics as their primary means of attempting to bring about change in culture. And his argument is that when we see politics as the primary means of bringing about change and abandon all the other spheres in which we do have influence, we are undercutting our own goals in the long term. And we are engaging in an approach to power that is ultimately antithetical to Christian engagement as it ought to be, which is to say turning the other cheek and loving our neighbors as ourselves, etc. That the raw exercise of power can be fundamentally corrupting to that Christian ethos. And while I'm not sure Hunter would say that In fact, I'm sure Hunter would not say that that means don't engage in political engagement. What he does want us to do, and where I think he's absolutely right, is to recognize that, you know, how we build our families and how we build our institutions like universities and museums and orchestras and and bands and small businesses and large businesses, all of these things are also extremely important. And... I think it's fair to say that if we look at our political discourse nationally over the last several decades, this is applicable not just to Christians in the public square, though I think it's especially applicable to us given our other affirmations, but it's applicable to all of us. We all have engaged in a politicalization of our approach to cultural issues. We think that if there is a problem, the way to solve it, whatever that problem is, whether it's healthcare, which is admittedly broken and may need some legislative action, but it may need other kinds of action as well, or whether it is how we engage on certain moral issues. How do we think about abortion? How do we think about homosexuals getting married? And wherever you stand on these issues, is politics the primary or most effective or to step away from a utilitarian view, the right place to be attempting to make these changes? And I think that's a very different question. And I think it's one that often goes unconsidered. I think that we often have a stance that says, do we have a problem? Let's find some larger entity that mandates that everybody fix it. Right. I've read To Change the World as well, and I also agreed with it very strongly, especially Davison Hunter's claim that you don't have to be explicitly a Christian thing to do things in a Christian way. Right. So you can do an arts magazine that never talks about God for the glory of God in a way that would please God. I really respect. So I agree with him entirely. And I think that he would agree with the sage words of philosopher Vanilla Ice and say, (laughs) if you've got a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Check out the hook while my DJ revolves it. Because I think that we don't think that enough, that we don't say, all right, I see a problem in the world and I'm going to go do something about it in my very small, earnest little way. And that's partially because we, as a culture, idolize these tech giants and CEOs and athletes and celebrities and giant cross-cultural multinational world action is is what we admire right now, um, which hasn't always been the case, incidentally. But right now, that's what we admire. 
And so it doesn't make a lot of sense sometimes to say, I'm going to do this little thing that will affect a few people. Right. I'm going to build a better community in my neighborhood. I'm going to pick up trash in my neighborhood. I'm going to start a little arts get-together every weekend. I'm going to go to the park and talk to my neighbors and play with our dogs together. These are small changes, but they can add up. And more importantly, they make different kinds of changes than political engagement does. And again, not to speak ill of political engagement. We want more of it. As we started out the episode, we think these apps that increase political engagement they're good. And in fact, in some sense, they're examples of people doing exactly this in the realm of political engagement. Right. They're doing ways that other people can get involved by not particularly petitioning the political process themselves or trying to get everybody to use this app or trying to mandate that this is the way we vote in America, although that would be kind of awesome. But they're trying to say, here's a tool that other people can use that would make the political process better. I think that's valuable. Yeah, I think it's incredibly valuable. And I think if we can take that same kind of attitude back to those kinds of little examples we were just throwing out and mm -hmm. recognize that we're going to be more effective, but also we're going to be engaging more rightly as human beings, which is a, a pretty big statement, but I think it's true. Yeah, that's pretty bold. To recognize that loving our neighbor in the really simple practical ways, like having them over for a barbecue and engaging in good, friendly conversation and being there when they need some milk and being there when their mom dies and just being friends with each other, building those kinds of structures to grab another book to counteract some of the influences that were noted by, uh, what was his name? The guy who wrote Bowling Alone. We'll link it in the show notes. I'll look it up. But to counteract those kinds of things is no less important than to engage in the political process and to build community, to sustain the arts, to do these kinds of things is very different from political engagement. But we know that building healthier families has really good outcomes for dealing with poverty, dealing with people's health, dealing with people's education. They're linked together. Dealing with the justice system. Yeah. And sometimes you can't legislate your way to, I mean, being blunt, you can't legislate your way to healthier families. It, yeah. It's just not going to work. You have to come at these things from other ways, and failing to do so has led us into some of the problems we have now. Right. And so I feel like it's important to praise both things, mm -hmm. to praise exactly. the idea of politics when it's worthy of praising, to praise the idea of apps about politics, and to praise having a barbecue with your neighbors and inviting everyone on your street. And you might be thinking, in your, in your headphone world, dear listener, <laughs> that doesn't seem very logical at all. How could we possibly affect change in the world by getting to know our neighbors? Well, do you know your neighbors? <laughs> and are you just worried that you would have to go meet them? And that's why you're just concerned about this. It's a big deal to know your neighbors. And the fact that most of us don't know our neighbors says how big a deal it is. And that's not unlike the same fears that we have sometimes of participating in the political process. And I think that's real because both of them require going outside of ourselves getting outside of our comfort zones, getting outside of our potentially our safe ideological spaces, engaging with messy things. And theoretically, the political process, when you engage in it, results in large sweeping change and getting involved with your neighbors doesn't necessarily get involved in any sort of large sweeping change. And so we've just deprioritized that and said, no, 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 that's not as important. But if everyone in their community knew their neighbors, and I'm not saying that there aren't neighbors, 
neighborhoods where this is totally true. And I applaud you for those neighborhoods <laughs> that have great communities. But if you knew your neighbors and started to see what your same elements of life were, what your same characteristics were, what your different characteristics were, that's the sort of thing that slowly changes culture. Well, and I think to take it one step further than that, agreeing with everything you just said, and again, to push against our typically American utilitarian bent, there is also a sense in which doing these things is not just good because it can produce cultural change, though I think it is good at least in part because of that, but because it's part of what it means to be genuinely human. It is part of what it means to be a full-orbed person. And I think too often we care only about the things we can accomplish by doing something. But a lot of human life is not just about what you're doing, but it's about who you are. It is about how you live, and not just because of how you live affecting other things that you're doing, but because you're meant to live in a certain way. Human existence is supposed to have certain contours, and we recognize that this is a genuine human concern because it's been a point of genuine human concern for millennia, and every major religious and philosophical approach out there attempts to answer not just what ought I do, but who ought I be. And one of the problems with an over-politicization of public life is that, like a number of other things, an over-economization, to make up another word, we can end up reducing things to ends and means rather than to human beings as what we're meant to be, which is genuine goods in and of ourselves. Human beings and relationships with human beings are, are the ends of human are some of the ends of human existence. You know, I would not say they are the only end. I go off and point to the Westminster Confession and use their answer a bit for that. But one of the genuine ends of human life is not merely to improve things for others or to engage in political process or to do and accomplish certain things, but to be in a certain way, to live in a certain way. And I think it is important to remember that these things that we're that we are affirming are good in part because of the ends they accomplish outside of that human existence, but they're good more importantly because the human life is meant to be more than merely striving at other ends. It is meant to be more than merely trying to produce change or trying to produce some outcome outside of oneself. And these things are good because of that. Yeah, I agree that there's kind of a, a habitus, kind of a, an existence level that we can we can miss. There is there is a real way that just living is the point of living. I mean, that's it's it's a re recursive statement, but we can miss that in all of the the struggle and hustle and bustle that the ways that we live maybe aren't the only ways to live for sure, but they may not be in line with how we best operate as humans, which is a difficult thing because it requires you to step <laughs> way outside of cultural and political and economical and historical roles and look at a long stretch of who are we, what do we do, what is the point? And that's something that many people over history have looked at, but also most people over history don't have time or interest to do, which is something that's intriguing about our current state of the economy. And I don't mean like today economy, but like economy over the last 4,000 years. The way that our economy works still affords time to think about these things. We don't have, you know, morning, morning to night schedules that are agrarian. I don't know. We're starting to loop way far off, but... <laughs> We'll come back to these things in a future episode. Yeah, but to bring it all around, looking to politics, even good involvement in politics 
as the end-all be-all of how we get things done in our communities, in our states, in our country, and ultimately in our own lives is not necessarily the way. There are other ways that we can do things and other ways that we should seek to do things. And for other reasons than just this will be the biggest amount of change over the most amount of people. This has been episode 12 of season one of Winning Slowly. All of our content is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution License, which means you can do whatever you want with it. Just say you got it from us. The track at the beginning, however, is not by us. It's by the band Noir, and it's called Those Days. So check them out, but don't use their music without uh, their permission. If you like, you can follow us on app.net, Twitter, Facebook, or Ello. We'll talk about that sometime soon, too. And you can subscribe to our feed in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, I have been Chris Kreitcho. And I am and will be Stephen Caradini. Thanks for listening. Good grief, I could not talk today. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you had you had some rough ones in there. You're gonna have a, a uh, editing job for yourself. Yeah, that that's like the uh, the magnet that keeps bringing things in. <laughs> it's still going. <laughs> we can't turn it off. <laughs> we can't turn it off. <laughs> Historical economy over a four thousand year turn. <laughs> Crap! This is too far. Too far. <laughs> oh gosh. Hey, we could probably turn off our microphones, and that would save even more bandwidth weight. Wait, wait, I, d I don't. Wait, no. Wait. <laughs>